Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. In this day and age, you need to be careful with your language. There are some words that... (laughs) That kind of uh, didn't used to be offensive, but now it's incredibly offensive. There are some words that used to be really offensive that aren't offensive anymore. And, and I find as a speaker, I have to be um, very careful with my words. There is one word um, that does um, bring me um, a little bit of um, tension and even criticism sometimes, and it's the word sin. Sounds weird, doesn't it? Because we're a part of a church and uh, we read our Bibles. But I find in my travels, as I interact with people individually and as I preach corporately, that this word sin is a tricky one. Because we live in a day and an age where it is deeply politically, come on, incorrect uh, to draw or to uh, divide any kind of um, lines or, um, 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 or ideas or, or, or morality. Uh, we live in a day and age where it is quite offensive to a lot of people to even propose the idea that there is such things as right and wrong, true and false, black and white, and sin. Um, I was up in Brisbane recently. And uh, I preached uh, my message, um, and throughout the the course of my message, I mentioned the word sin. And um, at the end of uh, the meeting, um, I was praying for a bunch of people, and out of the corner of my eye, because I'm Asian, I got really good peripheral vision, I saw this lady kind of milling around, looking like she really wanted to talk. And so I wrapped up the conversations and I took uh, the youth pastor who was hosting me and we went over and we, and we spoke to this lady and, um, and she gave me both barrels as she um, took issue with uh, my raising of the topic of sin, something that breaks the heart of God, something that brings death into our life. She couldn't get her mind around somebody being so judgmental, so bigoted, so religious, so fundamental. And um, I tried my hardest to explain to her it's not my desire to hurt anybody or to belittle anybody or to condemn anybody. I'm just trying to explain stories that come from the Bible. And if you actually look at these stories, we must engage this concept and this topic of sin. What was fascinating was right after this conversation, uh, this lady would walk away, somebody else would come and talk to me, and the first thing I saw was that he was holding a really big, thick Bible, and he had this look on his face, this kind of like crazy, mad professor look in his eyes, and he, and he came up, and then he started having a go at me as well, and he started blasting me and gave me both barrels because I didn't go hard enough when I talked about sin. I didn't talk about hellfire, nor brimstone, nor worms that don't die, and, and he started absolutely going after me as someone who is peddling uh, one of those um, kind of hyper-grace messages, which I find really, really fascinating because grace can be nothing but hyper. There's nothing more hyper than the unmerited favor of God 
commended to a broken and busted people, but that's another talk for another day. And so he's absolutely blasting me that I didn't go hard enough on sin. Suffice to say that these interactions left me a little bit rattled. It left me a little bit confused. And it left me, again, recognizing that that word, sin, is a tricky word to use in this day and this age. Because for some, it makes them turn off, switch off, and run away as they label you as another bigot, another right-wing Christian fundamentalist who's trying to point fingers. And for others, it is used as a baseball bat to beat people over the head. And as they feel worse about themselves, uh, themselves they feel better about themselves. So, so this word sin is a tricky one. But it is, come on, important for us, dare I say imperative for us, whether we're in a youth ministry, whether we're young adults at university, whether we uh, work um, in a workplace and we get into conversations about God, faith, church, and religion, whether you're raising a family, whether you're a leader within this church. Even if you're here just checking this whole Jesus deal out from a distance, come on, it is imperative for us that we engage this word and we allow the word of God, come on, and the spirit of God to clarify and to extrapolate this concept for us. It is not only important, it is imperative. Why? Because the Bible talks about sin. I know it's uncomfortable, and I know it's not cool. I know that if you even kind of mention it on Facebook, everyone's going to jump on there and start kind of posting stuff about how bigoted and narrow-minded you are. I get it, but you've got to understand that if the Bible was a Facebook kind of um, um, profile, the word sin would appear. Uh, it is mentioned 474 times in the Bible, uh, or nearly 200 times in the New Testament alone. So the Bible talks about sin. And if we're going to be a community that's really based upon and built by grace, we have to also recognize that the Word of God is going to bring up some tricky kind of, kinds of concepts and, come on, uncomfortable kinds of conversations. And we have to allow, come on, the grace of God to bring us into these conversations with confidence, knowing that God isn't trying to hurt you or harm you, to belittle you or make you feel guilty and horrible, but to empower you and to free you, all right? So we have to first and foremost recognize, come on, it's in the Bible. As well as that, Jesus taught about sin. Numerous times he would teach about sin. In fact, he would tie his fundamental mission on earth to this idea of sin. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, he says, I've come to set people free from sin, to save people from sin. So not only did he teach about it, but he raised it as a concept from which he wanted come on, to, to release us from it. So we need to talk about it. The Apostle Paul and, uh, and the early church fathers, as they penned the epistles, basically like the uh, operation manual for the church, they also spoke about sin. They talked about sin. They taught about falling short of the glory of God and his standard. Paul and the church fathers spoke about it. 
Come on, we need to address this and understand how to explain this and to speak about it in a loving and empowering way because at the same time, you've got to understand that good news is relative. And good news isn't good news unless we can also explain what the bad news is. Have you ever noticed that good news is relative? Um, like if you were at a party and, um, you know, I invite you around to come to my house. We have a crazy party. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna have a pool party. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be fun. The music will be pumping. Everyone's going to be running around. It's amazing. And all I cater for drinks is water. You'd be going, this is a terrible party. There's water, like kind of really, you couldn't step up and even get some like kind of home brand cordial. You couldn't even, couldn't do that. It's just water. It's like, kind of, so water at a party is just like kind of so bland and blasé. But come on, if we were stuck in the desert and I came up with water, it'd be the sweetest drink that ever passed your lips. You see, see, good news is relative. Something in one context is ho-hum, but this other thing in another context where it is desperately needed, it all of a sudden becomes a lifesaver. And you got to understand that the gospel message, come on, the good news message only really becomes gospel good news if we can also articulate and frame really carefully what the bad news is as well. So it is important for us as a people who want to be a covered by grace community that Banks on the fact, like I mentioned this morning, that the grace of God and the gentleness of God and the kindness of God and the mercy of God is not only enough to bring someone into the house, but to carry us as a community into our destiny and take us all the way home. It is incumbent on us to at the same time understand how to, in a gracious and God-glorifying way, come on, handle this topic and this issue of sin. Not speaking about it, come on, isn't love and it is not grace. It's just laziness and cowardice. So what I feel compelled to do tonight is to deal with this tricky catch-22 topic of sin. Smile, it's good news, okay? Because you're not alone. Have you noticed how sin is a little bit of a weird thing to talk about in this day and age? You know what I'm saying? Trying to share with your family, share with your friends, maybe witness to your work colleagues. It's a word that you steer away from because it's tricky today, but fear not. It was tricky back in the day as well. And the way I want to deal with this topic is by looking at a time Jesus dealt with the topic of sin. And you've got to understand, even back in Jesus' day, this sin deal was really, really tricky. If you have a Bible, go with me to the book of John, John chapter 8. And Jesus found himself in the midst of a catch-22, a lose-lose situation. As he had to deal with this concept and this topic of sin in a very difficult environment. The Bible says, starting from verse 2, At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around to hear him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. She'd sinned, you know. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in an act of adultery. In the law of Moses, the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? Listen, they were using this question as a trap 
in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now, go leave your life of sin. What a fascinating picture. What an interesting and intricate story. This day, Jesus appears in the temple courts and he's preaching and he's teaching. At this point, he was already the talk of the town. This radical rabbi preaching and teaching and announcing the kingdom of God in a manner it's never been announced before and the masses were showing up to hear him. Freedom dripped from his celestial lips. Power flowed out of his very hands. So the establishment were worried. No, the establishment were petrified. For Jesus was turning the temple upside down, right side up, metaphorically, and later he would do so physically. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law understood, like today, back then, this whole sin concept is a little bit of a tricky one. It's a little bit of a hard subject to raise up because for some, it switches them off. And for others, it brings confusion and actually breeds a sense of arrogance, pompousness, and eventually religiosity. The word sin back then was tricky like it is today. And so the Bible says Jesus is there, he's preaching, he's teaching, he's getting his, his like kind of theological exposition on and everybody's excited because they got a seat at the Jesus session. And in the middle of this message, Jesus is preaching, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law bring a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. The way that this story is written gives the connotation that she was physically in the act of adultery when they dragged her out of the house or the room where she was found. So most likely, scantily clad, she is dragged before a bunch of men sitting in a temple listening to Jesus And we are told here in John chapter 8 why they did it. Because they understood that this would trap him. Because it's a catch-22. If Jesus affirmed sin's definition like it is defined in the Old Testament, the masses who were gathering around to hear the new rabbi would discount him as just the same old, same old with different packaging and the buzz would die down. If he let her off the hook, they could point fingers at him and say, you are a heretic and that you are rejecting these words in this scripture that you so proudly pronounce. You're a fake and you're a fraud and you're a phony. You don't believe in 
the scriptures that you're preaching. So here we find ourselves in a situation. Sin is brought before Jesus. And today, like back then, it was a very charged word. There was a catch 22. But then Jesus brilliantly responds. And I just want to reflect on a few of these responses in my last few minutes with you. Because these responses establishes a precedence, I believe, for a grace-based and a grace-fueled church to converse about, come on, to engage with this topic that is found within the Scriptures and must be unpackaged in our story. So this is what Jesus does. Famously, sin is brought before him. Brokenness is brought before him. Less than God's best, missing the mark was brought before him. And his initial reaction is to quietly kneel and begin to scribble in the dirt. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, the status quo, would pepper Jesus with questions. What say you? This is what the law of Moses says. This is what the law of God, whom you profess to be your father, says. What say you? He stands up and he makes a statement that would reverberate through the ages and do not miss its significance. With a wry smile, he looks at the religious leaders like he looks at us today and he says, cool, if any of you is without sin, start chucking stones at her. The law commands it, but if you are without sin, then and only then do you get to pick a rock. That's powerful. Can you see what Jesus is doing there? Jesus, in one famous statement, is actually affirming, come on, the reality of sin. He didn't say, hey, 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 hey. All sin is kind of basically relative, and if you feel it's good and it kind of brings you joy, then it's all good. And No, 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 no. He doesn't let this woman off the hook, but what he does do is he lets everybody know that this sin is real, but it is a human condition. Just speaking personally, I know as someone who's been brought up around church, I kind of, you know, was raised in that generation where it was all about, you gotta, you gotta love the sinner, but hate the sin. And somehow that unbiblical concept spawned in me this thinking that there is such thing as sin, but sin is the problem of the harlot, the prostitute, the liar, the cheat, and the thief. And they're the sinners, and because I am one of God's, I am the good. And, and, and so sin is other people's issues, other people's fallings, other people's failures, and not mine. But Jesus right here in one fell swoop affirms this reality. Hey, 
sin is real, but it's, come on, it's an issue for everybody. It's a human condition. The Apostle Paul would state it this way in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. Hey, we've all done it. We've all fallen short. Raised in church, new to church. Lived a relatively clean life. Raised on the wrong side of the tracks and everything in between. We have all fallen short. I love how Jesus here in one fell swoop cuts the legs out from any religious person who would point fingers at any peculiar sin and say that that is worse than this sin and you're a particularly bad one and this is a bit of a lesser one. No, he throws everybody into the same bucket. And he says, cool, start chucking. Let's get our stone on, but only if... Only if any of you has no sin in your life. This halted the religious leaders because as they began to reflect this poignant and pressing question, they had to come to the conclusion, Jesus is right. Sin isn't just the brokenness of a section of society. Sin is the brokenness that marks all of humanity. Now, I need to make this very clear. He did affirm, come on, he did recognize the existence of sin. And you've got to understand, irrespective of the post-modernic, politically correct world that we live in, Jesus' words must trump even human wisdom and convention today. I get it. It's not cool because we live in a post-modernic world with, with something called moral relativism. It's only kind of sin if you feel it's sin. And if I don't feel it's sin, but I feel it's good, it's got to be gravy, baby. And who are you to tell me what my truth is? And I get that. And I understand how societal shifts over the last few hundred years have brought us to this point where we as a humanity think that we can define for ourselves what morality is. But if we were to become honest with ourselves, even the most fundamental postmodernic moral relativism believer has to acknowledge that there is something inside every single human heart that just knows there is such things as wrong and right, black and white. Irrespective of opinion, irrespective of the voices of the masses, there is something inside every single human heart that has to acknowledge that this sin stuff is real, that brokenness is real. I had a fascinating um, conversation last night about um, hearing about Phil Walsh's death and what it did to Adelaide. I was actually in Adelaide ministering that weekend. And I remember how I've never seen one city, one town so collectively impacted by one event. In all of my years of traveling, in all of my years of ministry, it was 10 for 10, 100 for 100. Everybody I interacted with, there was such a heaviness. And what kept coming up again and again was, it's just not right, it's just not right, it's just not right. And this shows us that irrespective 
of postmodernic forces and this concept of moral relativism. Come on, there is some stuff, come on, that we just all know deep inside of our gut. We just know that that ain't right. And Jesus identifies that. He's going, sin is real. But sin doesn't divide people between good group and bad group. Right group and wrong group. Walk around proud group and hang your head low group. No, it is a collective issue. Oh, I love that. Not cool. But it will be a source of empowerment and freedom. Just give me a few minutes. So what he does is he first and foremost says, all right, if any of you haven't, hasn't got sin, because I'm not saying it's not real. I'm not saying this woman hasn't done anything wrong. I'm just trying to say that you guys have kind of misunderstood the fact that it's everybody's issue. And then he goes on to do this. He kneels down and he begins to scribble in the dirt. What he scribbled in the dirt has been the cause for probably more theological conversation and hypothesis than any other point maybe in the New Testament over the last 2,000 years. What did he scribble? What did he do? I know some scholars would suggest that he began to write the law into the ground that he began to explain how the grace of God and the mercy of God wasn't a new topic or a new theme, but it is an unbroken thread that was introduced in the Garden of Eden and flowed through all of God's story. I've heard other scholars and other theologians say what Jesus started to write was the sins of the religious people who were surrounding. That would have been a bit of an awkward moment. Pervert, arrow your direction. (laughs) I've heard scholars and theologians reference an obscure passage in the book of Leviticus where the law commands if someone is caught in adultery to bring the man and the woman to scratch dirt from the ground, to make a ball of mud, to put it in their mouth, to have them eat it. And if they are guilty of that sin... God will cause that mud ball to swell and kill them from the inside. There's a random Leviticus verse referring to that. And I've heard scholars say what Jesus was doing, he was scratching at the dirt, making a mud ball, trying to expose these religious leaders that they think they know the law. They don't know the law because Jesus is the embodiment of the law and the fulfillment of that law. What did Jesus write? What did Jesus draw? What figures did Jesus scratch? We don't know. Man, if there was ever a time I wish there was Instagram around, that was the time. Even if it had to like basically come in the form of like a white girl kind of Jesus scratching in the ground selfie, like kind of like, even if I would have loved to seen, but we don't know. But that, doesn't matter because what Jesus scratched in the ground wasn't the point 
because he didn't scratch in the ground to show how brilliant he was. He didn't scratch in the ground something that he wanted us to know forevermore. So we must assume that what he scratched in the ground isn't of importance in comparison to what was the fallout of him scratching in the ground. That we know very clearly. Because the Bible says Jesus is there and he's scratching in the ground and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law standing around saw what he was scratching. And the Bible says, in response, they left the older ones first. Or in other words, the Pharisees and the religious leaders going, oh, we got Jesus, we got him. He ain't gonna be cool after this night. We got him. We got this woman caught in adultery. We're going to embarrass him in public. He's going to have to nail his colors to the mast. And either way, we win. Jesus, what say you? He said, yeah, I'm not denying that there's sin. But the reality is, it's every person's issue. And as well as that, here I am scratching in the dirt. And whatever he scratched had the older ones, literally the smarter ones going, whoo. That's a good point. All right, we out. The younger ones looking at the older ones going, all right, okay, we'll get you next time, Jesus, and they walk off. Or in other words, what he scratched in the ground isn't of consequence. The result is what we have to pay attention to. What was Jesus scratching? I don't know, but what was he doing? He was defending this woman. That's mind-blowing for a lot of people because a lot of people think Jesus came to point out humanity's sin and to bring a spirit of guilt, to belittle a people so they would be so broken down that they would finally submit and bow before Jesus. No, Jesus didn't come to bring condemnation. Jesus didn't come as heaven's prosecutor. Jesus came to earth as the public defender. And this is a game changer. Jesus, listen to me, acknowledges the reality of sin. But he doesn't acknowledge the reality of sin to belittle you, to hurt people, to bring guilt. He acknowledges sin because he's trying to make it very clear to us what he's come to deal with. The Bible says he did not come to condemn this world, but to save this world. I know for me, that's a game changer. For me, growing up around a church that very clearly defined what was right and what was wrong and what was a commandment and what was within the boundary and what was outside of the boundary and how Jesus felt about you when you kept the rules and how Jesus felt about you when you broke them. For me, I always thought Jesus and therefore all Christians existed to point out sin and to laugh at our brokenness, but he doesn't. He comes in the world to identify the brokenness so he can deal with it. Come on. He didn't come as heaven's prosecutor. He came as the public defendant. Jesus didn't come to this earth 
Jesus didn't die on a cross. Jesus wasn't, come on, laid in a grave. Jesus didn't come out of the grave, overcoming sin and death. Just so some could be recognized as the holy and pure and the rest recognized as the wretched and wrong. No, he went through all of that because all of that was required so that no matter who you are or where you're at or what you've done or what kind of sin is choking out your life or what kind of brokenness is dragging you into the pits of hell, that he could look at you fair and square in the eye and say, I can deal with this. He didn't come to prosecute the public. He came to defend us. Hence a blood-stained cross and an empty tomb. But the way the story ends is probably the most beautiful. So Jesus acknowledges the reality of sin. And I think everybody, if they were fair and open to a genuine conversation, would have to acknowledge that irrespective of moral relativism that basically marks philosophy in this world, that deep inside of our being, come on, we just know there are some things that are just wrong. So he acknowledges that there is a sin, but, 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 but sin isn't just that which broken and bad people do. Sin is a disease that everybody has, but Fear not, good news. Jesus came not to point it out and to laugh, but he came to stretch out his hands and to deal with it and to defend us. And the way the story ends is so beautiful. The Bible says, so the older ones and the younger ones going, all right, good point. And so they're off there and they go, and Jesus, the Bible says, is left there alone with the woman. She's standing, he's kneeling, he stands and looks at her in the eye and asks the question, where are those who condemn you? She says, sir, they're gone. So neither do I condemn you. Remember, Jesus isn't here to belittle or to hurt. He's here to bring life and to bring hope. He identifies sin, but he doesn't only identify it to pick out the issues in our life. He identifies it because he wants to deal with it. And while he and she are in a one-to-one conversation, Jesus says, I don't want to make you feel any worse than you feel right now. You got dragged out of here and they're gone now. It's just you and me. But I'm going to lovingly tell you, you're free. We basically had a kangaroo court kind of called into session here. Your accusers have walked away. And now you can walk away too. So go now and leave your life of sin. What's happening there? Didn't Jesus identify sin, come and say he wants to deal with it because he's not like kind of heaven's prosecutor for humanity's defender? Why is Jesus kind of capping this off with this seeming little jab, this seeming little barb? Hey, I want you now to leave this life of sin. And I want you to hear this. 
He asks us to leave our life of sin because he loves us so much. He would come from heaven into this earth. He would get into the dirt and scribble whatever is required so judgment does not have to befall us from our brothers and sisters. He would go further and allow his hands to be pierced and his side to be sliced open, crucified. He would die so desperate, come on, is Jesus to do whatever is required to free us from our brokenness, to deal once and for all with our sin. But Jesus loved us so much, he came all the way to us to find us. But listen to me, he loves us too much to allow us, come on, to stay here. And this woman is a picture of basically where sin brings you, into a space and a place of helplessness and hopelessness, brokenness, not really tasting life. And Jesus says, you don't have to do this anymore because what I have done. You now get to go free. Leave now your life of sin. Jesus doesn't hate sin because of what it is. Jesus hates and wants to deal with sin because of what it does. Sometimes we think to ourselves that Jesus hates sin because it's growth. I didn't make things that way. It's just horrible. I can't handle it. There's nothing that Jesus hasn't seen. That's the reason sometimes we as Christians, we kind of categorize sins and like really bad ones and not so bad ones, like kind of, you know, sealed section ones and ones that we can all kind of do. It's a bit of a, you know, a, a, a little bit of a um, extravagance on the side. You know, no, no. Jesus has seen it all. And he's not grossed out by one more than the other. No, he despises sin. Not because of what it is but because he knows what it brings us to and what it does to us and how it ruins us and how it hurts us and how it robs us of our future and it destroys our peace today. And because of that, he shows us his end game. Not only to identify the fact that sin is real, not only coming to die on behalf of us so sin could be dealt with, but so he could offer us what only he can offer us. Freedom to walk away. Go now and leave your life of sin. He doesn't raise sin as a topic because he wants to prove a point. He identifies its reality, shows how he wants to deal with it so that you and I can have freedom. Go now and leave. This court that you have found yourself in, Guilty as guilty. But because what I have done, go now and leave and embrace the freedom that I desire for you. So this is my simple heart's hope and my simple heart's prayer. That this would be a church that would always be brave enough and bold enough, authentic enough and real enough to have genuine conversations, both from the pulpit 
to the congregation. Come on, both from leader to community. Come on, both from brother to brother. Come on, both from sister to sister. Come on, both from friend to friend. About the reality that brokenness is a part of all of our journeys. But the recognition of this wasn't meant to belittle us or to make us feel condemned or unworthy. But the recognition of this was just to remind us how beautiful and great and gracious our God truly is. And as the one who comes as not heaven's prosecutor, but humanity's defender. And he would show this by allowing himself to be slayed on a cross. In that interaction, we would know that we need not be ravaged by the fallout of this brokenness and this sin. But we get to leave now and embrace our freedom. We were convicted in court, but he did everything that was required to set us free. Here's a little bit of an addendum. But Dan, does that mean that I can just, you know, just come here week in, week out and, you know, because he's my defender and all that kind of stuff and he's loving and kind of smells like roses and kind of feels like marshmallows, like kind of, I can just like not work. No, no, no. I believe that Sin gets dealt with. I believe that our lives are transformed. Come on, I believe that rough edges are smoothed off. Come on, I believe that brokenness, come on, is mended. Come on, I believe that wretched areas that bring hurt and hatred into other people's situations are dealt with by the grace and the glory of God. But I also do believe that it's always an extension of understanding This is all of our issue. That Jesus did everything was required for it to be dealt with. And we find ourselves face to face with him. And he's the one that explains now we can go free. Freedom won't only be an option. It'll become our every desire. As Romans chapter 2 states, as we come face to face with Jesus and we express, and we, 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 um, we experience his kindness that has to lead to a place where we turn away from the stuff that was destroying us. Come on and turn towards a new free life. So there we go, family. A sermon about a topic you don't hear very often. And I probably won't ever talk about it again but we'll do it here. Because we, my friends, are brothers and sisters. We're banking on the fact that this grace stuff is going to be more than enough. But in that mix, there must be opportunity for us, come on, to be real with each other. But as we get real about sin, remember, we don't get to point fingers. It's all of our issue. But fear not, God saw the issue and sent his son Jesus to deal with that issue. Not as heaven's prosecutor, but as humanity's defender. Hence a bloodstained cross and an empty tomb.
And his end game is this. Not to belittle, not to bring condemnation, not to stir guilt, but to fill your lungs with the air of his grace and point you towards freedom with him. That's why Jesus talks about sin. Can somebody say amen to that? Come on, come put your hands together just for a moment. Thank Jesus for that beautiful reality. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au. 